Last week, we were introduced to this vision. The vision was of Satan as the dragon. And the vision was designed to explain the current difficulties the church is facing. Meaning, why is it hard for Christians? Why do we face so much temptation? Why do we face so many difficulties? Why do we sometimes face persecution? And again, persecution ebbs and flows in different cultures from time to time. But nonetheless, it's a reality. And so we saw that the dragon is seeking to oppose the work of the Messiah. Satan failed in stopping the Messiah's mission. He failed in preventing Jesus from dying for our sins and rising from the dead. Now, beyond that, now he's, he's just basically raging on earth, the vision told us last week in chapter 12, against the descendants of the woman that is basically a description of the believers who are on earth. He's raging against the church. That explains why every day we are in a spiritual battle, not just a battle with our own sin and temptation, but a battle because we are facing external difficulties, that there are, there are attacks against believers that come from Satan and his demons. So the vision presents that, and it helps to explain to the seven churches, this is why you're going to face difficult circumstances in your life. This is why it's not always easy. Of course, in their context, they had a situation where some were imprisoned, and some would later be executed, and some their, their possessions were confiscated, and they had to pay fines. It was, a, it was a tough time. And as the vision continues this morning, the dragon now basically is going to create a, an entity through which he will seek to oppress the church. The dragon creates the beast, summons a beast, and then next week we're gonna, there's another beast. And so it's basically an unholy trinity here that's, that's leveraging their power to make life difficult and to discourage believers. Now, these, these visionary right, representations of what Satan is doing, they are meant to import, uh, communicate an important message to us, to communicate the urgency of the spiritual battle that we're in. Just to recognize that, you know, this is not something that we can be casual about, um, my friend John Knox, a Scottish reformer back in the 1500s, he said this. this is, he wrote this letter. Uh, he wrote this. Um, it was a book, but he, he wrote it um, the year of his death it was published. So he was at the very end of his race. Knox had a, a very difficult situation in life for multiple reasons. And so he had seen firsthand the execution of believers. He had, he had fled the, the country for safety to uh, Geneva. He had, he had lived through all kinds of difficulties in his life directly related to the persecution of the church. So this is what he wrote. He wrote to the faithful that God, from his mercy, would appoint us to fight after him. So he's basically writing saying, I hope that there are other believers who will pick up the fight when I'm gone. He knew his life uh, was almost done. He asked that God would give mercy, grace, and peace with the spirit of sanctification to believers to do what? To resist all kind of impiety. And in the last and most wicked days, wherein Satan rages, knowing that he has a short time to trouble God's people. Basically, Knox says, we're there. Revelation, he's directly quoting Revelation 12. That, that Satan is raging against the church, but he only has a short time to trouble God's people. And Knox says, we need soldiers. Not soldiers who will go out and shoot guns. Soldiers who will, who will press on in the faith. He wrote that because the battle was so urgent. Every Christian is called to this fight. The question this morning is, do you realize that you are called to this fight? 
So let's unpack what's going on here with the beast from the sea and see how it's meant to be an encouragement to us to follow the Lord. Okay, we pick it up in verse 18 of chapter 12, and a lot of your Bibles will have like kind of the new section starting there. But we already had the vision of the dragon, but now this, this merges now into the, the vision of the beast. So verse 18, the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. And I know most of us associate going down the shore as like a positive thing, but this is not a positive right here, okay? Uh, we associate going to the, to the shore as, you know, rest and relaxation and sunburn, you know, or whatever. Uh, but, you know, we, that's what we think of. But when we think of the sea from a visionary perspective here in, in Revelation 13, you need to think about the sea as the source of chaos and evil. Now, some of you have seen Jaws. Can I get an amen? Okay, yeah, that's what we're talking about, okay? Some of you haven't, haven't gone swimming since you saw Jaws. And so, and I, it's, it's, it's understandable, right? That's the idea, okay? There's stuff lurking in the sea that's no bueno, okay? It's, it's bad, right? And it's, that's the source of chaos and evil. That was kind of an ancient, uh, um, you know, depiction of the sea. And that's, that's what's in play here. So the dragon stands right there at the fountain of, of chaos and evil at the sea. Uh-oh, something bad's coming. Verse 1 of chapter 13. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. Okay, this thing is really hard to draw, okay? Like, it's a scary beast, but there's two things you need to know about this depiction. That First of all, it says the beast had ten horns. And that ten horns, you may not remember it, but it might be lingering in your memory, that ten horns connects to a beast that was already described in the Bible in Daniel chapter 7. Now, that's another situation where it's a, it's a vision. It's a vision that God gave Daniel of the authority, the governing authority of the day that would come and oppress believers. And so that the ten horns represents ten kingdoms or ten rulers of a kingdom. And so that beast, it, it does bad things, and those horns do bad things to believers. But it's a representation of governing authorities. We're talking about governments. But this beast not only has ten horns, it has seven heads. Why seven heads? It has seven heads because the dragon had seven heads. And so there's a connection here that basically you could say it this way. The sea beast here is made in the image of the dragon, its master. So Satan will raise up this beast and will use this beast to accomplish his ends. What the beast does is for the dragon. So that's the point, the connection between Satan and the beast, all right? And from Daniel 7, we know that, okay, the beast probably represents government, governing authorities, so on, the, on its horns, verse 1, were ten crowns. Again, talking about that authority. And on its heads were blasphemous names. This means that the authority is intentionally postured against God. This is not a, a believer trying to reign for God's glory. This is, we're talking about a government that has as its official stance, we do not agree with the Bible. We do not agree with what the Bible says about who God is. We are against that. So that's the posture. Now, Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, he was given this vision. And then what happened after that was Antiochus Epiphanes came and ruled over Israel. And it was a bad day. Bad things happened to believers. The temple was, was destroyed. It, it was, it was, or was um, um, violated. It was used for pagan worship. It was, they were bad days. It was hard to follow Jesus. It was hard to walk by faith. It was hard to pursue the Lord in that circumstance. And that same theme is picked up right here in, in Revelation 13. Watch verse 2. He says, The beast I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, 
and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. I just pause there in the middle of verse 2. In Daniel, there were actually four beasts, okay, and it was the last one that had the ten horns. Well, the, in Daniel, one beast was like a leopard, one beast was like a bear, so on and so forth. And so this is like a merging of all those beasts. Uh, I don't know how you feel about leopards uh, or, or bears or lions. You don't want to encounter them out in, out in the wild, which is another reason why the family campout was so risky the other night. But we, we, we made it. We made it. Uh, why the bear? Why the leopard? Why the lion? It's this, this beast, this position of government, this, this uh, stance, right? They are going to be strong and powerful, and they are going to be postured against the Lord. So it's like all the bad stuff, all the dangerous stuff, there it is. Watch verse 2, though. This, again, the vision is explained a little bit. The dragon, that's Satan, gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. Remember, the dragon's game is to attack the church. And this vision starts to explain a little bit about how that happens. Those with governing power will actually, will actually intentionally or unintentionally, will actually use their authority to accomplish the dragon's mission and will cause problems for the church. This is not just something that will intensify in the future, which it probably will, but it also is meant to explain what the church was facing during the Roman Empire, back when John wrote this. But it also explains Satan's strategy even today. Watch verse 3. It's, it's interesting here. We'll talk about what it might refer to. But he says, One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. This could either be talking about a specific ruler, uh, one of the Roman emperors, Caligula. He got really sick and almost died, but then recovered. Uh, Nero, there was a rumor that Nero had died and that he kind of came back to life or something. So maybe that was it, possibly. Other scholars think maybe this is talking about the Roman Empire, even though um, it was attempted, they tried to assassinate Julius Caesar to prevent, you know, the emperor from having control. But the emperor still had control, even though Julius Caesar was assassinated. So the empire survived, or maybe just the empire kind of had ebbs and flows, and it dipped down, and then it came back up. But one way or another, the resiliency of this power of the beast, that's the main idea here, it results in the fact that the whole earth is amazed and follows the beast, and thinks, this is it, the beast is great, that this is what we should trust in. And again, don't forget that in the Roman Empire, there was a religious flavor to their politics, that Rome was presented as, uh, you know, Roma, the goddess Roma, and that the emperor was presented as basically a god or a son of God, and so the emperor would reign. And so, you know, there was a lot of religious connection between the, the politics and, and the, the practice of Roman government, and so a lot of that power was being used to persecute the church. Of course, in, you look at history, the governing power has often been used to persecute the church. Watch verse 4. They worshipped the dragon. They worshipped Satan because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? We really want to focus there on verse 4 because this is the crux of the issue as far as how it relates to us and how it related to those first believers who read Revelation. The question the world was asking is, who is like the beast? Who is like Rome? And that language, right, the who is like, you recognize that from Micah chapter 7, or you might recognize it from Exodus chapter 15. Who is like the Lord is what it's really supposed to be used for. It's a statement of worship of the true God. But here it's been corrupted. Again, this unholy trinity is exercising power. And so they're saying, who is like the beast? All right, who is able to wage war against it? Who is like Rome? Who can defeat Rome? 
that no one would have thought anyone could have defeated Rome. And so Rome was worshipped. They have all the authority. Of course, in other times in history, you substitute different rulers in that worship clause. Who is like? You could put in another ruler or another nation. Well, the bottom line here is that as Satan attacks the church, he will use those with power to do it. It doesn't mean everyone in government is, is uh, evil. It doesn't mean that every government does this to the extent that it could. And it may look forward to that ultimate reign of the Antichrist where there is really fierce uh, persecution at the very end. But why does God give us this vision now? Because we need to know now that when there are situations where the government leverages its power and the church suffers or believers suffer, it's not an accident. That the dragon is behind it all. Ultimately, the question is, who will we worship? Because the world loves power and authority. You see, don't get weirded out. You're thinking, who's going to worship this crazy, ten-horned, seven-headed beast, weirdo, crazy thing? Right? No, no, no. That's not how it does it. Right? The question is, who will worship authority and power? Who will worship government? I'm going to tell you something. A lot of people are worshiping power and authority. They're addicted to it. There's no greater... There's no greater source of investment of dollars and time spent than it is in pursuit of political power. I am sometimes amazed at the amount of money that politicians can raise for their campaigns. But when you think about the power that they wield, it makes sense. They've got all this power, right? So invest all the money so that the the one who has the power is fighting in your court. And so people worship the beast, right? They worship the dragon, We learned this morning that spiritual warfare is always about worship. At the end of the day, it's always about worship. Who or what will we worship? And so, yeah, Satan's raging against the church through the worship of power and authority even today. Whether or not this describes exclusively future events, some commentators think this is only in the future. I'm not one of those. I think it's actually describing the whole strategy of Satan over time, but whether it's, whether it's only future or whether it's present and future, the reality is this passage is meant to equip the church to say, I'm not going to worship the beast. I want to be aware. And so I'm not going to put my faith in earthly government. And you might think, well, Pastor Ryan, I don't know if that's really my struggle today. Well, hold on just a second. Because in our, in our nation, we put a lot of energy into the pursuit of party politics the Republican platform, the Democratic platform, whatever it might be. We put a lot of energy into the Supreme Court, monitoring the Supreme Court decisions and who's appointed as the next Supreme Court judge and all of this. Culturally, we're obsessed with the Supreme Court right now. It's not just our problem, though. We could go to Africa and see tribal leaders using their power to wipe out rival tribes. We could go to the Middle East, and we could see how ISIS was able to build an empire basically out of nothing, out of just what? Pursuit of power and control. Who is like the Republican Party? Who is like ISIS? Who is like the tribal leader? Who is like Wall Street? Who is like Hollywood? Who is like D.C.? Oh, let's get, let's get personal. Who is like Bill Gates? Who is like Elon Musk? Hopefully no one. Who is, like, who is like Trump? Who is like Obama? Who is like Oprah? Whatever. You know, people worship those who have authority because they worship authority. And you just got to know. It, it's not always intentional, but here's the deal. 
when governments don't have an explicit desire to affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ, Satan will use their power to cause a problem for the church. I'm not saying it's intentional, but we're saying this is a thing, that the dragon creates the beast. And the beast is made in the image of the dragon. This isn't new. Again, the church faced this 2,000 years ago. It's faced it all throughout its history. So we got to ask the question, well, how is Satan trying to, see, trying to deceive us? And why, how is he trying to trick us into worshiping the beast? Worshiping something or anything other than the lamb. So we could ask, okay, well, what am I valuing most? And if we value political pursuits most, maybe we need to be careful. Maybe that's a red flag. What do I get angry when I don't get? If your party loses or your candidate loses the election or the, the court verdict comes down and you're not in agreement with it, is that a justification for you to lose it? What will I sin in order to keep? Are you willing to cut corners for political gain that you just think, you know what, the end justifies the means, so I can lie about this? You know, the most common one I see so often is where Christians will... Uh, run down politicians that they don't agree with and insult them. They'll do it on social media, thinking it's okay because they're the bad guys or something, and, and it's okay to do that. Those all may be signs that we're worshiping the beast, that we've got caught up with the pursuit of power. Of course, the false trinity, and more on that next week, this, this, uh, you know, this unholy trinity, anything we worship that's in opposition to the Lamb right? We've got to surrender that. We've got to, the word, the biblical word is repent, right? Where we say, no, I don't want to worship the beast. And maybe I've gotten caught up in it and I need to confess my sin. By the way, that's a reminder of how the actual, the, the gospel works, right? That we repent of our sin. We say, yes, I've been wrong, Lord, to do this, to say this, but I confess that as wrong and I turn away from that and I trust in your death and resurrection for my forgiveness. I belong to you now, Jesus. My allegiance is to the lamb, not to the beast. And whether you've, if you've never done that, I encourage you this morning that God loves you and the proof of his love for you is in Jesus. But make no mistake, we're in, we're in the middle of a war. This is a war zone. And John Knox was right. We need people to fight because Satan is raging. Though his time is short, he's raging now. Will you worship the beast or will you worship the lamb? We'll see that theme continue in the next few chapters in Revelation. Now, though he's deceitful, in one sense, Satan is hiding in plain sight. Watch verse 5 of chapter 13. The vision continues. The beast was given a mouth uh, to utter boasts and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Okay, just pause there, verse 5 in the middle. Uh, The beast was allowed to blaspheme God. Of course, that's the the, the names on the ten horns. They're blasphemous names. They are openly against God and his purposes. Does that sound familiar to anyone? We're increasingly living in a day where the official stance of government is is contrary to and against what we find revealed in God's word. And so we see that happening. And what's up with the 42 months, the, the three and a half years? One commentator said it this way. It was really nice. It's a broken seven, which means they want this power forever, but they can't have it forever. It's limited. 
They only get it for a limited time. Some people think that's a literal 42 months. It could be. I think it's symbolic. I think it stands for the fact that this attempt of Satan to have his beast rage against the church, he wants that to happen forever, but it's a broken seven. It won't happen forever. There's a limited time for this oppression and persecution of the church. He goes on in verse 6. The beast, it began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. The beast blasphemes God, it blasphemes where God's house, it blasphemes anybody who sent God a Christmas card, right? That's the idea. Those who dwell in heaven, all the saints, all the angels, like it's anybody. It's like, okay, if you're associated with God, the beast is against you, right? That's the deal there. That's what's going on in verse 6. Open rebellion. But it gets harder, verse 7. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. And it was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. What? I mean, this was uncomfortable last week as we saw the vision where the dragon is given authority by God to persecute the church for a time. He's allowed a time to persecute the church. And we're in that time frame right now. Here it's the same thing. The dragon and the beast are given permission to wage war against the saints and to conquer the saints, meaning to imprison them or perhaps even to kill some. And that authority extends in verse 7 over every tribe, people, language, and nation. What I want to draw your attention to this morning is who gives this permission. It's God. God is sovereign over it. And he is accomplishing his will even through it. And so there's even in the wording here of the vision, there's an acknowledgement that just so we're all clear, it's not as if God is not involved. God is sovereign over it, and yes, he has temporarily granted Satan, the dragon, and the beast permission to persecute the church. Note the extent of this uh, authority. It extends to every people group. This explains why there is so much opposition to the gospel in every culture. It comes in different forms in different cultures, but it's the same thing. It's opposition to the gospel. It's opposition to people who have trusted in Christ. Many will be deceived. Watch verse 8. All those who live on the earth will worship it, the beast. Well, everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. So here's the deal. The, the Lamb's book of life, okay, that Lamb who was slaughtered for us, that's a reference to this, this roll call of believers, of those who have trusted in Christ. And we remember in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it talks about how uh, God uh, elected those who he would save before the foundation of the world. So before creation, God's already written all this out. And so the fact is that everyone who lives on earth whose name is not in that book, basically everyone who will not trust in Christ, they are infected with the disease of worship of the beast. And so they're caught up in the worship of power, authority, government, whatever it is. You see here in verse 8, we see very clearly two things about Satan's authority. First, Satan's authority is comprehensive. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Satan is called the God of this age. God has given Satan temporary authority uh, over the earth, every tribe, tongue, and nation here. And yes, Christ will redeem out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, but for the moment, it's a difficult circumstance for believers amongst every tribe, tongue, and nation. So Satan's authority is comprehensive, and we see his deception in every culture, though it's in different ways. So he deceives about his existence. We talked about this last week. One of Satan's best strategy in our culture is to convince people he doesn't exist. They're like, there is no dragon. There is no beast. 
He's also deceiving, though, about our identity. If we just focus on what Satan's attempts are, attacks are in our culture, Satan wants to attack the way you think about who you are. And his message today is, your identity is bound up in whatever you want it to be. You be whoever you want to be, and don't let anyone, even God Almighty, tell you otherwise. You are God. That's one of Satan's lies that our culture has bought hook, line, and sinker. You are God. And it's unfortunate if you think about saying, well, who is like, who is like the beast or who is like the dragon? The sad thing is, many of us, the song we sing every day is, who is like me? Who is greater than me? That's a satanic way of thinking. Satan deceives about God and his word. Again, in our culture, this has come in a particularly uh, destructive version where he says, not only do people doubt that God exists, if a God exists, they say, well, we can never really know for sure, so you can live however you want, you can believe whatever you want, and his word, right, the Bible, you can basically make it say whatever you want. You don't have to submit to the word of God, you just edit it. If there's a part you don't like, take it out. Just say it doesn't apply today. And there's an approach to God's word that is uh, entirely relativistic, where we say, well, I only believe the parts that I like. Once again, in that category, who's God? I'm the God. I decide what is true and what isn't. I decide what I like. Again, that's one of Satan's foundational um, tactics in our culture. But Satan also deceives about the nature of Jesus' ministry. In our culture, this is the deal. You can talk about Jesus with anybody. Everybody's heard of Jesus. Uh, the most common thing you'll hear said about Jesus, well, I think Jesus was an important teacher in human history, but I don't believe he's God or anything. I don't believe he did miracles. I certainly don't believe he died and rose from the dead. Right? So in our culture, there's like a kind of a, people give a generically positive affirmation of Jesus. Most of the people that do that have never read the Bible seriously, so they don't really have a good beat on what Jesus actually said and how much he actually claimed to be God. So they're like, yeah, Jesus is a nice teacher, and by their standard, they would say he was actually insane because he claimed to be God. He claimed to perform miracles, right? He claimed to be able to tell the future, right? So there's that kind of an attitude towards Jesus. And so in our culture, and Satan's happy to use that and, and use it to advance the cause. Say, yeah, yeah, sure. Jesus is just a respectful teacher. His teaching shouldn't be normative for your life. It's just one option among many. That's how we get to a place where we can redefine marriage as a culture. That's how we get to a place where the new tolerance says that we have to tolerate and worship and celebrate every alternative view, even if it goes against what God says. That's how we get to a culture where Christians can potentially face legal action for preaching a gospel which says you are a sinner in need of a savior. I have a friend, a living friend, down in Florida. Uh, I don't know, I have to clarify, I have to clarify that. A, I don't know which ones are real friends, actually. I should say that. I know a guy. So uh, the, this friend of mine in Florida, he was, at a, uh, he was at a shopping mall, and he was um, sharing the gospel with people, and he had literature, right? So he had tracts, so he was giving out, uh, giving out tracts to people he was talking to. And um, they called the police on him because the, the shopping, or the store owner, one store, whatever, didn't like what he was doing. So they call the police. So the police come, and uh, he was actually arrested, which he, wouldn't, he shouldn't have been. And later, uh, thankfully, um, he was vindicated in court because he had a right uh, to be there with free speech. But um, the, the deal was there was nothing more important 
than those shop owners making money. And they didn't want somebody talking about Jesus distracting from, well, the beast, the mission of the beast. And so they, had, they called in the authorities, and they had him arrested. And that was like, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. Well, fast forward to COVID, and we go up to Canada and advanced Western culture, and now we have pastors being imprisoned because they were trying to have church. It's like, wow, I, I never thought I'd see the day. I mean, I know back in the Roman Empire, Christians went to prison and stuff like that, but that couldn't happen today. Brothers and sisters, Satan is raging, and his authority is temporarily comprehensive. So first of all, it's comprehensive, but secondly, Satan's authority is temporary. This is where we like that broken seven. Okay, you need to like that number, okay, because that's a broken seven. It is not complete. There are limits to this authority, and there is a temporal limit to his authority, which assumes two very crucial truths that we read in the Bible. The first is God is sovereign even over our suffering, and second, God's plan is best even when it's not easiest. God is sovereign even over our suffering, and God's plan is best even when it's not easiest. So those are hard, that, that's a hard reality, right? But that's the vision. It's preparing the church. So what? What do we do? Take up arms? Watch verse 9 and 10. Here we get our marching orders, right? First of all, we have the prophetic call to pay up, pay attention, to listen up. If everyone has ears to hear, let them listen. Jesus used the same terminology right, in the Gospel of Mark. Again, that's a prophetic, uh, it's a prophetic line. The prophets would call, if you have ears to hear, let them hear. So basically, if you're a believer, here you go. This is what we're talking about. This is how it applies to you. Seven churches back in the Roman Empire. This is how it applies to you here at Green Palm Bible Chapel in 2022. This is how it applies to those who will live in the ultimate generation that face the Antichrist. Whatever that is, here we go. What's the, what are the marching orders? Verse 10. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. Now just pause. That little ditty, all right, it's a little proverb. It was used in the book of Jeremiah to talk about God's guaranteed judgment for those who oppress his people. But here, the Holy Spirit turns it a little bit. And here it's used to say, listen, if God has ordained for you to suffer as the church, as a believer, if he's ordained for you to suffer, it's going to happen. And so he's not saying take up arms and fight against the Roman Empire. He's not saying that uh, we need to get, get violent in our opposition to those who oppose the word of God. What is he saying? Watch the very end of verse 10, and this is the key takeaway. And he sums it up for us really clearly so we don't miss it. This calls for what? Endurance and faithfulness from the saints. You see, there are all kinds of faulty responses to adversity, especially spiritual adversity. We could complain about the spiritual adversity that we are facing. Social media has made that really easy. Okay, You can get on social media and you can complain about how bad our world is all day long, and there are Facebook groups dedicated to that. Okay, They're not called that, but that's what they are. There are groups dedicated to just complaining about the world. And I, I think that probably complaining about the world sells God short. It's not an accurate picture of his sovereignty in the midst of these 42 months. So, you know, there's, a, I think, a temptation that maybe we would just complain. 
and not understand that, yes, God may have this for us, but he is good. And, and I'm going to worship the lamb, not the beast, no matter what. A second faulty response is, we may, we may be tempted to hide from the beast. Let's all move to Idaho, buy a compound, and homeschool our kids, right, and protect ourselves from the beast, okay? That will not work for several reasons. One, Idaho's terrible. <laughs> Two, that's not true. It won't work. Why? Because we take the beast with us. Because of our sin, the temptation, can it's going to jump right over that wall. There's no hiding from the beast. He has authority, temporary authority, over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So you can move it wherever you want. You can hide wherever you want. And obviously, I, no, no, no diss on homeschooling, but if the motivation for homeschooling is to hide from the world, it is not effective. It's not going to work ultimately. Another simple response to adversity is to attack the world. We learned this one from Peter, right? When, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the garden, and Jesus had explained to Peter, this is what has to be done, it has to happen. And Peter's like, over my dead body, right? And he pulls the sword out, and he goes, he goes to work with the sword, right? He's going to attack, and Jesus has to stop him. And he actually miraculously heals the one guy. Because Peter doesn't understand that suffering is part of what the mission entails. And sometimes we get in that same mode and we go on the attack against the world. This is a different Facebook group. This is the group where it's not just complaining about how bad the world is. It's now we're on the attack. And we're going to tear them down. We're going we're gonna to shred them. Right? And we're gonna, it's us versus them. Right? We forget that we used to be them. Right? So it's like it's us versus them. And so we're going to attack the world. But that's not the call. I think one final potentially faulty response to spiritual adversity is to reject Jesus. And this would just be proof that we were never really following him in the first place. But we might just say, forget it. We embrace the worldly view. We embrace satanic thinking. We're going to worship the beast with everybody else. That's it. We're done. And we just walk away from the Lord. What is all this, what, what did the dragon and the beast and all this, what does it call for? It calls for, verse 10, what does it call for? It calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. You see, brothers and sisters, God calls us to faith-driven fortitude. Faith-driven fortitude. I was proud of that word fortitude this week. I had to look it up. I got to be honest, I had to look it up. Fortitude means courage in the face of adversity. God calls us not to attack the world, not to run from the world, not to complain about all the hardships that we're facing, and certainly not to walk away from Jesus. God calls us to faith-driven fortitude. Because we know what is true, because we have trusted in Christ, we are equipped to walk by faith through even the most fierce attack of the dragon and his beast. And one commentator said it this way. This was really great. He said, those with ears to hear resist beast worship. That, this is where the rubber meets the road for us today. You're going to be tempted to quit. You're going to be tempted not to endure because it's too hard. There's too much pushback at school. There's too much flack from that professor. There's too much opposition in the workplace. There's too much pressure from the government to believe in a certain thing and, and to advance certain agendas that go against the word of God. The, all that pressure is going to come down on you. Maybe it's from your family. It's going to be coming down on you, and you're going to want to quit. But this calls for the endurance and the faithfulness of the saints. 
God has called the church to endure by faith, even if it means going into captivity, even if it means the sword. It may get hard for you. It may get harder for you. But don't doubt that God is still sovereign and he is still good. We'll get to the end here of Revelation. This is not the end of the story. But it does explain the difficulty that we're facing in the moment. And again, John Knox was right. We need warriors. We need spiritual warriors who are committed to follow Jesus no matter what. Not to lash out against the culture, which doesn't know better, who worship the beast, because yeah, they worship the beast. And not to hide from the culture, but to stand as, as this shining light of, of this model. This is what you could have access to. This is what's so different about following Jesus. You see, we need these warriors to persevere in the faith, who believe what God has said, that Satan is defeated, that the Antichrist days are numbered. You know, when you read about the Antichrist, a lot of people think this passage refers to the Antichrist, which it, it may. And if it does, a lot of people get really worked up about the Antichrist. And I can tell you who the Antichrist is, but I'll do it after church. <laughs> John in 1 John 2 says, We know the Antichrist is coming. One probably key leader, right, prior to Jesus' return, who will lead the world in in severe rebellion, probably that's how it's going to go down. But John says, but many antichrists have already come. And so it doesn't matter who the antichrist is. We're fight, fighting this battle right now. Will you worship the beast or will you worship the lamb? Will we believe? Now, what does it look like? Okay, so let's say, all right, what, what does it look like to actually do this today? Well, first off, you got to be spiritually vigilant. So we're not casual about our spiritual health. We're diligent in be paying attention to our attitude, especially what we read, right, what we watch, how we communicate about what we believe to others, what we get caught up in. So be vigilant for your own spiritual health. Stay in the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, read your Bible. Like, read your Bible. Even the stuff you don't understand, okay, it, it's helpful to us. And as we talk in community, we can grow in our understanding of the confusing parts and the hard parts. But I'm just telling you, one of Satan's practical strategies is to distract you from reading your Bible. He wants you reading Facebook. He wants you reading Fox News. He doesn't want you reading your Bible. Stay with the church. Saints, we need each other. I mean, if there's one kind of practical takeaway, the seven churches, as they're reading this, they're like, we, get, we have to stay together in this. I mean, this is the deal. We're under attack, and we need to link arms spiritually. Again, not an assault against the world, but just to say we need to support each other because this is a difficult, ba this is a difficult battle. Again, that's why Knox was writing the letter. He's like writing the letter because it's, he wrote that work because it's so important that we raise up another generation and we pass this baton of faith in, in Lord Jesus and the protection of the gospel. Like, we need that. We need to encourage one another when we're having difficult weeks. you got to be with the church. And one of, the, one of the first signs that you're headed towards trouble is when you're not with the people of God regularly. That's going to give you a warning sign. Wait a minute. Maybe I'm isolated here. Maybe I'm, I'm out alone and I, and I haven't. I'm missing something. It's no mistake that in Hebrews 10, one of the most famous passages that tells us not to forsake gathering together, why do we not forsake gathering together? So that we can encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. We need encouragement, Right? So be vigilant, be vigilant. Uh, stay in the Word, stay with the church. Beware of the love of comfort. The love of comfort is not compatible with Revelation. It's not going to work. 
So, and again, that's a main, one of the main gods of our culture. So who is like comfort, right? So just beware of that. Um, beware compromise. Those areas in your life where you're willing to cut corners and you're willing to do things you know God says you shouldn't do or you're willing to say things that are in an attitude that you know dishonors him, but you're willing to do that stuff just because you want to fit in. Just be careful. Again, those with ears to hear resist beast worship. I wonder this morning, do you, are you aware of how, how intense the fighting really is? Because the beast is raging. Uh, one of my favorites, and it's favorite for many, uh, reading back when I was growing up and then now because of the movies, are uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Enjoyed those books so much. Mostly because the heroes and main character are short people. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, you're, you're tell- I'm reading about hobbits the first time, and I'm like, these are my people. <laughs> like, this is it. We found them. Uh, down to the hairy feet. So, uh, that, Tolkien was, he was intentional. He was so intentional in this work. Hobbits are little people absorbed with their world in the Shire. They like their smoking their pipes. They like their farms. They like to go to their pubs and they're involved in family politics and all that. They're just caught up in all of it in their little world in the Shire. They have no idea the force of evil that is amassed outside of their borders and is even seeking to infiltrate their borders and to destroy their way of life. They have no idea. And so what happens? Well, a few hobbits are given a glimpse of what's really going on. They have to look beyond the Shire, beyond their birthday parties and their family drama. They have to look to the bigger picture of what's going on in the world. They have to travel where they never dared they would travel, endure dangers that they would prefer not to face. They have to fight enemies they cannot defeat. Why? Because it's right. Because at the end of the day, if they don't fight, they would be siding with the beast. So they were woken up. And I just wonder if too many Christians are living in the Shire, content to just piddle around with our pipes and our birthday parties and all the little things that that we're chasing, never stopping to think about what's really going on in this world. Never coming to grips with the fact that we face a spiritual battle every single day. And yeah, it is scary when you think about it, the dragon and the beast. But the refrain that we need in our hearts is not who is like the beast. It's who is like the Lord. Here is a call for the endurance and faithfulness of the saints. Would you please pray with me to that very end? Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. And Lord, it's a vivid picture of the difficulty that the church will face and even is facing. And Lord, we ask for your help because, uh, Lord, many days we're just happy to be ignorant of it. And Lord, unfortunately, in many ways, we, we do fail and we, practically speaking, we worship the beast and we worship the dragon. Lord, we pray that you would help us to confess that as sin, to turn from it, to turn to you because you are better and there is none greater, Lord, than the lamb who was slain, 
so that our names could be written in the book of life. Lord, we thank you for that truth. But we recognize today it means that we may face difficulty, and it could just be awkwardness. Lord, it could be the need to make big changes in our life that we're not willing to make. Lord, it could be just general pressure from the culture, from media, whatever it is, Lord, and we ask that you would help us to endure in the faith. We pray that you would help us Help us to live lives marked by faith-driven fortitude. And Lord, help us to recognize that our, our strategy is not to attack the world, but actually the opposite, to show the world your love and your greatness, to communicate the goodness of your gospel, and to see those who are deceived by the beast rescued day after day. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this lifestyle, even though it may result in suffering and difficulty. Lord, we thank you for those saints in ages past who were faithful, who lived during hard times and and gave us a model to follow, like John Knox and others. Lord, we pray that you would help us to follow their example of enduring and persevering, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Lord, we thank you at the end of the day, our confidence is not based on our ability to survive or to be victorious, but it's in your victory already won on the cross. And so, Lord, we thank you that because we serve a Savior who died for our sins and rose from the dead, we can, for the moment, go through hard times knowing that ultimately we have victory in you. All wrongs will be made right. So, Lord, help us, we ask, to endure. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.